Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. This audio edition is created in conjunction with partners as part of our Market Voice series. Well, cross-media measurement is one of the themes du jour in marketing and media right now, and I did use some French there. Thank you very much. What channel works with what other channel and channels and how? And it's still all a bit fuzzy to me. Many of you wouldn't have heard of today's guest because he is nearly as old as me, but Dr. Dwayne Varan started a media lab at Murdoch University in Perth more than 15 years ago, probably more, before media labs were actually really cool. In 2008, he got an unexpected call from Disney in the US offering him an exclusive five-year deal that he had four days to decide on. Dwayne went with it, and today Media Science has three media labs in the US working on a broad range of media projects, and he's just been commissioned by the Premium Content Alliance to undertake a study quantifying the advertising benefits of premium content environments, and isn't that a raging debate? So, Dwayne, welcome. You've spent a huge amount of time, uh, or your time in the past decade in, in the North American market. From a chap from Perth, perhaps start with some of the standout work you did for Disney first that we mentioned earlier in that contract and why a Perth-based media lab is so deep in the US market. And welcome, Dwayne. Good to talk. It's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah, Paul. Um, yeah, so uh, I was an academic once upon a time. And um, I ran a research center. We had our own building on campus, our own team. And um, we really pioneered a lot of very new and exciting methods for understanding audience behavior um, in the television landscape. And uh, we had sponsors for that research, which were many of the US TV networks. And amongst those were a number of Disney-owned entities like ESPN and ABC. Um, And they were getting their uh, you know, their, their, their appetite wet with uh, these methods that we were using because fundamentally what we realised um, at my Murdoch team all those years ago... How long was it ago, Dwayne? What are we talking about there? Was it, was it late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah, so the research... I, I came to Australia in 96 right. and um, initially I began pioneering a little bit of this research with my student teams. We became a full-fledged centre in 2000. Righto, so 20 years ago, jeez. Not doing well for a bloke who looks 30. <laughs> well, and, and what we discovered uh, all those years ago was that usually when we're talking about audience behavior, we're interested in human emotion. We want to know something about the emotional journey that a person's on. But the fundamental problem is that people have very poor access to their own emotional journeys. So anytime you ask people about what they're feeling, you know, anything about their emotional experience, what they're giving you is the rational interpretation of their emotional journey, which it turns out is actually very far removed from their actual emotional journey. So what we decided to do was to measure emotion more directly. So we began using physiological measures like skin conductivity, heart rate, tracking eye movement, analyzing facial muscle movement, um, looking at those kinds of measures to more directly measure human emotion. And that was a real uh, breakthrough because once we began doing that, we began discovering things that really had not been known. And we began sharing those insights in our research publications. Um, And we learned very quickly that we could get sponsors for the research 
to see the results of the research before they were published because typically it takes three four years before you know your findings actually make it in print because you academics move pretty quickly don't you because we're like that as academics yes. yeah well and journals are very slow yes and the review cycle is very slow so it takes a long time so just for the right to see these results before the results were published us tv networks and australian networks as well began contributing to a, uh, a pool of money, which also helped prioritize the studies that we then did next. Right. So Disney got, got really excited about this approach, which was lab-based. And on Mother's Day 2008, I got a call from the good folks at Disney and they said, Dwayne, in four days, we're gonna have our upfront and we're going to make a major announcement that we're gonna be launching a lab just like yours in the United States. And obviously we want you to run it, so we have four days to negotiate a deal with you. Yeah. And I said, guys, I don't even have a lawyer. And they were like, well, you better get a lawyer. And get a good one too, it's Disney. <laughs> That's right. So we negotiated a deal, which actually turned out to be a win-win proposition, um, where I said, look, I'm not gonna be your employee. Uh, my, my research has to be independent. And so they said, okay, we'll, we'll let you run it as your own business and we'll pay for it. We'll pay all the bills. And I said, I don't wanna leave Australia. They said, That's okay. You can run it from Australia. I mean, the wish list went on and on and Jeez. on. They said, we have one demand. And I said, what's that? They said, you have to be exclusive to Disney. So I was like, right. okay. So for our first five years, we were the Disney Media and Advertising Lab um, operating out of Austin. And it was something of a secret. It wasn't really very well known. I mean, there has been press about it, but we did tons of research in that period. And then after five years, we came out of exclusivity and we began expanding as a business. So Media Science Today has labs in Austin, Chicago, New York, and a lot of work that we do outside of labs as well. And we, off, we operate our own Netflix-style OTT channel, which we use for research purposes. Um, we have a qualitative division, which has launched a product called Hark Connect, which is like the most advanced qualitative you know, uh, research platform. So we, we do a lot of things beyond where we started, if you will. So let's just, I mean, before we get to that though, let's go back to the lab. So I'm just interested in that five years you had with Disney, what were some of the sort of the standout projects in, in your mind, programs and research projects that you did there that had an impact? And then we'll get to some of the stuff you're doing, you know, now. So many, because right. it was across the board, um, you know, many different business units within Disney that we were working with. Um, a lot of those have had an influence on the market that the world wouldn't know about. For example, back in 2009, I think it was, we did a study for Good Morning America, which is a, a morning talk show, um, you know, on ABC. And um, the question, the idea that had come up at ABC was, they have this weather portion. Uh, so they have like little newscasts and they do the weather. And what would happen before is literally there would be an on-screen graphic scrolling through for 30 seconds with all the different cities in America and what their weather was gonna be. Cause it's a national show. So to scroll through all these different cities would take a while. And the idea was what if we put an ad there and the people in news went nuts and they said, this is gonna destroy the integrity of our news. And um, you know, the program people weren't sure what, what impact it might have on the ABC uh, viewership. Um, the advertisers weren't excited about it. They said, who wants a small ad picture in picture? You know, what's the value of that? It's not a full screen ad. It's just a little tiny ad in the corner. What's the value of that? So we did a study. And what we discovered in the study was, first of all, that real estate, that, that ad inventory was actually more effective, not less effective than a traditional 30 second ad. So even though it was small, 
the nature of the attention that it attracted because it was not in a commercial pod but actually in the program that was actually more impactful than a traditional ad then we discovered no negative impact for news no negative impact for the program so this led to abc pioneering this idea of including that ad picture in picture and now those kind of picture in picture ads outside of the traditional 30 second you know commercial inventory have become very normal in many places uh, in, in in the television landscape particularly in the u.s so that was an example of a study that made Disney millions of dollars ultimately um, off the investment that they had originally made um, in the lab. And I think there's 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 another case where you, that might have made Disney money. There's another one really interesting that where it saved it some money uh, in and around analog transmission. I think of ESPN. Just give us that sense, and then we'll get to some stuff that's current. Another great example is um, work that we did it as as you alluded to for ESPN um, when digital television came along. Many broadcasters, including ESPN, were broadcasting both digital and analog. And ESPN not only has many channels, but it actually operates all over the world. And you know, you can imagine the, the, the transmission costs literally every year were in the hundreds of millions of dollars for ESPN. So this is a big investment. But by the same token, if they went digital only, the main consequence is anybody who still had an analog 4x3 TV would suddenly have to watch their sports in what we call letterbox mode, which is kind of like, if, imagine if you were looking through a letterbox with black bars at the top and bottom. Right. You have a wider screen in a way, you know, a wider field of view, but you know, it's, everything is smaller because now you have these black bars at the top and bottom. So this was a religious debate within ESPN because some executives were worried that they would lose audience if they did this. Others were worried that, you know, um, the transmission costs were high and they could save the money and stuff. So we did a study. And in the study, some TVs, uh, you know, were four by, actually the hardest part of the study was finding all the four by three TVs that we needed to do the study because they all had to be identical and they were hard to locate in the market. But we had some rooms where people, living rooms where people watched on a four by three with letterbox, some where they watched it full screen like they would have with analog. Um, and we tested that across 11 different sports. And what we discovered was that in no sport was letterbox inferior. In fact, four sports benefited from the letterbox mode. One of those, for example, was soccer, where seeing more of the field actually provided a better viewing experience. We gave those results to Disney. Disney shut the analog network down, which was a point of no return. They couldn't go back once they did that. So it was a big step for them to do. Um, they did it, they shut down um, analog, and six months later, they looked at their ratings and they found that there were four sports where their ratings went up. And sure enough, they were the same four sports that we had identified in our research. Wow. So you can say that Disney ultimately, you know, and they continue to be a, a great partner of ours, but you know, Disney ultimately benefited financially off its investment in the lab. Just these kinds of studies um, saved or made them millions of dollars. So it, it, it paid off. So to more recent times, uh, you've got one, I think, at the moment you've done in the US for Comcast, um, sort of it's not fake news, but it did involve fake brands, as I like to call it. I think you call it fictitious. It's a little more diplomatic, uh, Dwayne. Let's just call it fake. Um, but tell us about that study, because it's got a lot of traction in the US market, got a lot of interest, and, and, and why so? So the, um, the study is, is for Comcast, which in the US is the parent of NBC, but also it's, 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 a, it's like Foxtel, it's a pay TV provider. Um, so they're very large, uh, a very established player looking at 
Um, they also have digital uh, sales as well. So, you know, they want to understand what the relationship is between television and um, digital, their digital assets. Um, so, of course, this is a debate that rages everywhere in the world. You know, should a brand move more of its budget into advertising on social media platforms? You know, and, and what are the benefits of that? And, and this is, of course, something that's been heavily studied. But the problem with the research to date is that um, if you want to test a brand that is well known, uh, you know, the Coca-Colas of the world, there's so much brand equity that already exists before you even do your test. So if you want to understand what impact an ad has when it's placed in a social media environment, how do you account for all that brand equity that already exists? How do you know if what you're measuring is not just measuring a lift which exists only because of that brand equity? In other words, um, if you hadn't had the benefit of all that brand equity that was already created, would you react the same way when you saw a Coke ad in your social media feed? So we wanted to test that idea, but you know, you can't kind of like undo all the brand equity that exists out there in the universe already. So what we did with Comcast's help is we created the brand equity um, for the study. So we took, we created fictitious brands. Um, so for example, one of those was a shoe ad for a shoe brand that they called Momentum. And it's a great ad. Comcast produced these ads, they're professional, you know, it looks just like what you would see, you know, if you were watching a real, you know, watching on primetime television and this great ad came on. Um, so that way we could create the prior exposure or not create the prior exposure, like on television, to then see what impact the ad would have in the social media feed. And, and the results were really dramatic. I mean, we report the results usually um, in aggregate and overall, but when you look at the results specifically for, um, you know, for uh, where, where the, the brand, uh, you know, where it was an unknown brand that didn't exist. So on average, the prior TV exposure provided like a 15% lift on purchase intent, but where the brand was unknown, it was a 35% lift on purchase right. intent. So it's a very dramatic, which really highlights, you know, a warning to brands, which is, you know, every ingredient in this uh, cross-platform mix is playing a, a crucial role. So be careful not to underinvest in your television on the view that you're going to be getting that value in social media. You really need both because they're playing complementary roles. Can I ask you though, so that's what the data shows. Does this land in the market? How does that received? Do you see behavioral change as a result of some of these studies, Dwayne, particularly that sort of stuff where you've got quite marked differences? Uh, how does the market respond and how does it behave? Well, I don't think the market behaves in one way. Um, you know, a study like this will come out and it triggers thought. It triggers a discussion. It influences dialogue. On its own, it doesn't do anything other than that. It creates a, a question which brands need to grapple with. You know, the, the, the world used to be simple and it used to be easy. And we, we, we kind of had some benchmarks and some rules of thumb that we could go on. Now the, the landscape is complex and we really have much harder decisions that we have to make around um, understanding our brands, understanding how our brands ultimately interact with consumers and, and how to really make that mix. So I do think that it has a positive influence in terms of challenging assumptions. Right. There was a fad of just moving TV dollars into social media dollars. And I think this 
this kind of had people, you know, second guess that and, and really go back and say, all right, what, what makes sense for us to be doing? Is this the, you know, is it as simple as everybody just resting to social media or, you know, should we really be thinking about this a little bit more systematically? There's a really good, um, a very intense discussion that's been going on in the US for, for a couple of years on ad loads and interruption. And um, America's obviously got bigger, longer ad breaks than what Australia does, probably four or five minutes, at least longer an hour, I think. Give us an update on what's going with ad loads. There's a bit of conversation here about it. We're seeing you know, lots of pushes for five-second ads and low uh, ad load pods and, and, and lower interruption. Where's all that in out of the US, in the US, Duane? Because it sort of it comes and it goes and it's kind of, where's it at at the moment? Yeah, so we do a lot of work. We, we call this line of research pod architecture. So, you know, we call the, the ad break the ad pod. And so we, we refer to this as pod architecture. And we do think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done around understanding pod architecture. Um, you know, how many breaks should you have? How long should the breaks be? Um, it's, a, it's a very um, political debate. Uh, certainly there's the research side of it where we have played a very active role, consistently demonstrating that, you know, limited interruption provides a superior ad environment. So if you have less ads in a break, you're getting a better ad environment for that. And conversely, if you have a lot of ads in the break, you're getting a worse environment. So if you're in a in a five minute pod, that's a bad thing. You're you know, especially if you're in the tail end of that pod, you know, the 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 attention to the ads is going to diminish um, significantly. But there's a trade off, you know, um, definitely two ads in a pod is superior, but you can't charge you know, the equivalent of five minutes worth of ads to those two advertisers. So how do you make back your money? And that's a problem. And that's a problem for the U.S. networks. Um, you know, what there, there are things that make a lot of sense uh, in the U.S. landscape in particular. Um, you know, one of those is that there are going to be easy occasions where there's no loss of revenue. So again, our, our rules are different in Australia, but in the U.S., um, for time-shifted uh, viewing, the rule is it, it, they count towards the ratings for up to three days. These, these are these kind of like arbitrary rules that govern the right. whole industry, but nonetheless, they're, they're the rules, you know, they're the rules of trade. That's the plus three, plus seven arguments, isn't it? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, the plus three, plus seven, yep. So for three days, the, the viewing that happens in time-shifted space gets counted towards the ratings, but after three days, they don't. So after three days, you, you know, you can be a lot more creative with what you do with your pods on those three day plus uh, spaces. So it would make sense, for example, to have limited interruption and to charge a premium for it in that context for days four onward, because you're not you're not um, rating the same kitty kind of, so to speak. You know, you're not cannibalizing your, your core revenue the same way. And is anyone doing that, Dwayne? There are people who are doing that. So every network has its own specific philosophy. There's not one governing principle. Every network, and, and the other thing also that many networks are doing is they're making some of their shows limited interruption. So rather than thinking about doing it for everything, they're creating premium inventory and, and reducing the ad load in that premium inventory. So that's another kind of response. But, but every network has its own strategy around what to do. The, the other recommendation that we've made is to increase the number of breaks. Because you can, right. you can, you know, one way that you could do it would be to have fewer ads per pod, 
but more ad breaks. And, and what we've demonstrated in our research is that the impact of those ads is actually significantly higher because of course, the greatest value is always that A pod position, the A position in the pod, the first ad. And so you have more first ads basically by doing that. But also what we've demonstrated is that program viewing is actually enhanced by more breaks because when you come out of a break and go back into the program, people go back in a more alert state. So there are also benefits to the program for, you know, and I'm not talking about 20 breaks, but for going from example, from four to six, we've demonstrated that six breaks with limited interruption would be better than two breaks with clutter. And so what, what the, the viewer, the viewer tolerance, the, the viewer um, sort of experience on that, that is, it, is your data showing that it, they prefer it that way as well? Our data shows that, again, just to use that one example, that if you could have two breaks that were long versus six breaks that were short, not only would the ad impact be higher where you had the six breaks, but viewers would perceive those breaks as being less intrusive, even though they're more, even though the breaks occur more frequently, even though you had six breaks rather than two. It's the clutter, which is the real problem for viewers. Right. People get really tired of having long, you know, commercial after commercial. And I guess the breaks and all this, because it does sound completely like common sense and why doesn't the industry in the, in the US or anywhere do it? I imagine it's probably goes right through the system though, right? It's about how they make shows and how they design shows for ad breaks. Yeah, that's right. So that sounds great. But then of course you have a problem because the industry is not structured that way. Um, you have independent studios, those studios have made shows, those shows have been designed with you know, four breaks, maybe five breaks. So, you know, now how do you gain the new breaks? So it's, it's not a, it, it, it requires a lot of change to the ecosystem for sure. Will it happen? Can it happen? Should it happen? Uh, it's happening. I mean, ads are, in the US at least, ads are becoming um, shorter in duration, um, especially around premium content. So premium content, there's just a lot of pressure to reduce those ad loads. Um, cross media, uh, cross media measurement. Um, it's you know, as I mentioned right at the start of this this uh, this podcast, it's it's big and lots of talk around it uh, around the world. Where's it at for you, Dwayne? And, and that leads us into the, the project you're you're doing for Premium Content Alliance here. But firstly, where do you see the debate at the moment on cross media measurement at, at a macro level? Well, at, at the highest level, our, our failure as an industry to properly account for cross media viewership, I think, has cost us a lot because it's created this perception that, you know, maybe television was in decline or something without really understanding how it's just people have been moving into new spaces. They haven't been, in fact, viewership is up, not down. It's higher than it's ever been. Um, and, and we can tell, I mean, the content available to us is better than it's ever been as well. So, so, you know, we have had a problem as an industry though, in that we have allowed our own limitations to kind of get in the way of good, good measurement. Um, and, and, and that's being remedied and rectified, I think, everywhere. Everybody is coming to terms with the fact that we need to do better cross-media measurement. But beyond measurement, um, you know, measurement is really a, a ratings problem, if you will. Beyond measurement, we also need to understand impact, and we also need to understand how these, pro how these different platforms interact with one another. Um, and, and that gets very complex very quickly, um, particularly because people attend the different platforms with different expectations. So if you're watching television on your mobile phone, you know, you may have less tolerance for a 30 second ad in that environment than you might have for it on television. So, so you, we have very complex ecosystems that we're building and we just need to measure and understand all these interactions. 
how it is that these different media platforms ultimately are experienced by consumers and what the best strategies are in terms of how to optimize for that. So for example, if you see a 30 second commercial on television, you may not need to then, subsequent to that exposure, see a 30 second exposure on your social media feed or on television. Maybe a six second commercial would do the same thing because you're getting shorthand, which is reminding you of what you saw on television. And it's, it's, it's bringing that, that narrative in, in, in your mind and in some really interesting ways. So there's a need for a lot of work going forward in really understanding those interactions. What are you seeing globally that may get us there in what time frame? I don't think it's, it's the same globally. I think everybody, every market is grappling with it um, in different ways. And, and there are structural reasons why, you know, in some markets you have a more unified measurement marketplace like Australia. But in the US, it gets a little bit complex because you have different actors who, who provide the measurements. So now you have even greater complexity to, to the challenge. Well, it gets us on, on this cross-platform discussion. It does get us to your current project, which is to try and unpack the advertising benefits of premium content. Good luck with that. Can you do it? I get the argument and I hope the data shows what I hope it does being in premium content myself. But what do you think is going to happen here? What's, what's, the, what's the brief from Premium Content Alliance? What are you going to try and do? Well, it's, a, it's, it's great. It's a landmark study um, because what Premium Content Alliance wants to do is kind of like really properly show these interactions, you know, across newspaper, um, you know, BVOD, uh, which is, um, you know, uh, uh, television kind of like in the Netflix style, you know, streaming environment uh, on television, mobile with short form videos, you know, websites. I mean, there are a lot of different platforms in this complex ecosystem. And uh, what PCA is doing is really kind of like unpacking this to measure it. And, and, and we've come to the party really very excited about this study because it's actually a landmark study globally, not just in Australia. And, and what makes it, I think, very unique and very special is that the same seven brands, uh, what we've done um, in partnership with the PCA is take these same seven brands and produce for a unified campaign across all of these different platforms so that you can measure the interactions. First, you can understand what, what impact they're having on on all these different platforms um, in their own right, but also some of the interactions around, you know, if you see it on print and then you go to a website, how does that impact? How is that moderated? How does it change as a result of that being a cross platform? Um, and then if that wasn't enough, um, also there is a phase of the study which is being done in the United States in our labs. And what's great about that is that'll be like the Comcast study because many of those brands are Australian brands which are unknown in the US market. And so now we will have the benefit of having that prior exposure being controlled. Just to give you a sense of how complex it is, um, you know, uh, some of the newspapers for, for just the one platform, you know, the news, newspapers are one of those many platforms in the study. And we have um, the Sydney Morning Herald, we have um, the Herald Sun in Melbourne, we have the West Australian. And what each of these newspapers are doing is at 3 a.m. when they're done with their normal print run, they take the plates off their printing presses and they put another set of plates for the entire paper on their, their printing presses. And that special edition has our test ads in it instead of the normal ads that would have run. They run that and then when they're done with that, they take those off and they do it again. And they have to do it again to produce seven different editions of that day's newspaper with these different ads in it. And then they have to distribute that 
to the people who we have identified for the study in Melbourne or Sydney or in Perth. Um, and we're doing that on six different print days. So just get a sense of how incredibly complex yeah. the study is. And that's just print. And the same level of complexity exists on the digital platform all up. Our team is producing something like 400 different versions of the websites to get all the different. So it's a very, very, very ambitious study. And, and like I say, I, I don't know of any study that has tested that for the same brands across all those platforms in that kind of unified environment. It would be remiss of me not to try to ask, what's your hunch of what's gonna come out of this? What's your sense? Do you have one? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's not entirely new to us. Obviously, we've done a lot of research in this space and, and I think people will uh, be delighted and surprised by kind of understanding the role that traditional media still play. But Dwayne, there's a lot of disses out there, right? There's a lot of people who would say that legacy and traditional media and all those things are, are, are sort of by the by and gone. And premium content, well, you know, you can get premium content on YouTube because it's premium if the individual deems it to be premium and valid and, and valuable to them. So how do you traverse that tension? I think there are many truths. Um, and, and part of the study is really about understanding where those truths lie. So. Not everything is gonna be superior, not everything is gonna be on, you know, on par, not everything will be less. There'll be a, it'll be a mixed bag in terms of all the different kinds of combinations that make a lot of sense. I mean, for example, um, you know, how does a, an ad that you see in the newspaper compare in terms of its impact, compare with the impact of an ad for something you would see in, in, in social media? And how does the interaction of those two compare? Like this is new ground that we don't really know a lot about because we haven't done enough research that has brought both traditional and new media together in that way. Mm, looking forward to this. I think given that you've got a lot of research to do, you should change those newspaper plates and tell us what the new truths are. When's this premium effectiveness study due out the findings, Dwayne? Well, we're in field right now. I, I would expect that the results you know, will probably be coming out early in the new year. So if I was a sponsor, I'd get an early feed on that then at MI3, would I? <laughs> a, bit like your, a bit like your lab series. Maybe, yeah. Yes. yeah that's, <laughs> that's a great right. idea. Hey, listen, great to talk. I'm really uh, looking forward to the findings on this because it's um, it should silence some lambs and then give um, some courage to some others, I'm, I, I assume. Good to talk, Dwayne, and stay safe till we talk next time. Fantastic. Thanks for the interview. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's moi in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.